Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. And we'll begin reading today in verse number 13. Romans 14. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of peace and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray now that you would fill me with your spirit. Father, you know there is not one good thing in me. There is not anything in me that's able to proclaim this in a way that is meaningful and useful and helpful. But Father, you are able And the Holy Spirit is able. And so I pray for the filling of the spirits. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us all, fill this room. That, Lord, uh, we might all have ears to hear. Father, I know this is a message for grown-up Christians this morning. And I know there may be some here today for whom it is a hard word and difficult to understand. And so I pray that you would speak to us and help me to make it clear. And uh, just help us, Father, uh, to see the importance of what Paul spoke about here in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last study, when we started in chapter 14, we saw that Paul was using this example of the eating of meat. And he was was using that as an example of an area of Christian living where good Christians disagree whether or not we should or should not do this thing. Some thought eating meat was wrong. Some thought it was not an issue. 
And we mentioned the fact that he may have been referring to a couple of different things. We don't know exactly what he was referring to there. He, he may have been referring to the fact that for some reason some Christians thought that just the eating of meat in general was wrong and a purely vegetarian diet was a requirement. Uh, I'm not sure if that is the case, but uh, there are even some today who think that way, so it could have been. He may have been referring uh, to the fact that some believed there were some Christians who were still trying to follow the Jewish dietary restrictions from the Old Testament, and uh, therefore that was their concern. Uh, he may have also been referring to the same meat offered to idols issue that we see in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it could have been any of those things. We don't know for sure. We just know there was an issue. But I also mentioned in that previous study, and I think it's true in this one as well, that uh, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter what he was talking about. It was just simply an example of a much larger truth that he was trying to get across. And there's a multitude of issues that we could substitute for the eating of meat that he references here. I think anything that is not clearly prohibited in Scripture and is a source of disagreement as to its rightness or wrongness amongst good Christians would fit right in with the larger truth that Paul is discussing Now, last week, that larger truth was seen in the first 12 verses of the chapter. And there we learned uh, that when it comes to other believers, and uh, especially believers who have a different set of scruples and concerns about such minor issues, we should accept them. You remember that's what he talked about in the first 12 verses. We should accept them because God has accepted them, and we are therefore on the same team. And also because they answer to the same judge that we answer to. And so it's not our responsibility to judge them. It's not our responsibility to condemn them. It's not our responsibility to look down on them. We as believers are to accept them. Uh, now, in this second half of the chapter, the example remains the same. He's still talking about this meat issue. But I think we could sum up, that whereas, whereas last time we summed up his teaching with that little phrase, pay attention to your own game, I think now in this second half, we could sum it up with him saying, pay attention to their game. Because that's what he's talking about here. Is it a contradiction? Well, let us see. Look with me at verse number 13. Verse number 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. If you remember, that's the verse that we ended with last time. And uh, now we're going to use it to start this, and it actually kind of ties the two together. It's a bridge between Paul's two different thoughts there. Uh, The first part of the verse refers to what we discussed previously. Don't judge one another. Don't condemn one another anymore. That's what he talked about in the first 12 verses. We are to accept each other and leave the judging to God. But now Paul expands on that. And he says there's something else we must avoid doing. That's the second half of the verse. We must avoid putting a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the phrase stumbling block is a translation of the Greek word proskama, and it refers to something someone trips over. It's exactly what it sounds like. The phrase cause to fall translates the Greek word scandalon. We get the word scandal from it. And it refers to a trap or a sin or an offense or a stumbling block or a hindrance. And so I think what Paul's saying here is we're to avoid tripping our brothers and sisters in Christ with our actions or choices. Don't do that. We're to be careful to avoid putting anything before them that could be a hindrance or an offense to them in their personal walk with God. 
Now, if you paid attention to that previous study, and, and we've mentioned this a little bit, but you know the primary conclusion was we should be so focused on our own walk with Christ that we aren't drawn into condemning or judging when we're to pay attention to our own gain. And I can imagine now there's some confusion about just what to do in those cases. For the last half of the verse seems to contradict that, as we said. It seems to say that we're to pay attention to their game. We're to ensure that our game doesn't hinder or offend or trip up theirs. Don't do it. I have a little book in my library at home. It was written by George Washington. It's called simply Don't. It's a very fascinating little book. If I understand my history correctly, it was written by George Washington when he was a teenager, uh, still very young. But it includes, it's, it's actually more fully titled, Don't, A Little Book of Early American Gentility. And it includes such gems as these. Uh, let's see. Don't, as an invited guest, be late for dinner. Don't neglect personal cleanliness, which is more neglected than careless observers suppose. And don't go with your boots unpolished. There's hundreds of these in there. It's a wonderful little book. It really is. And every single one begins with the word don't. Actually, the foreword to the book says this. It so happens, it says, quote, it so happens that most of the rules of society are prohibitory in character. Don't. And that's true, isn't it? If I'd have had time, I would have looked up just how many laws we have on the books in the United States of America. I'm sure it would boggle the mind to think of how many laws there are. But I'll bet you every single one of them could be preceded with the word don't. It's just the way things are. And Paul is clear here, isn't he? He's saying don't do it. He's saying don't judge others for how they serve the same Savior you serve. That's what we talked about last week. And then he says, oh, and by the way, don't do anything that would cause them to stumble in their walk with their Savior either. Don't do either of those things. So let's think for a moment about that prohibition. What is he saying we ought not to do? We ought not to put anything in the path of a brother or a sister that is a stumbling block. Here's how John MacArthur explains that in his study Bible. He says that that stumbling block is, quote, anything a believer does, even though Scripture may permit it, that causes another to stumble or fall into sin. That's hard stuff. Anything that a believer would do, even things that the Scripture might permit, that causes another to fall into, into sin. Now, in my introduction last week to the message, I mentioned that this is where the rubber hits the road. Romans chapter 14 is not for baby Christians. Romans chapter 14 is for the mature. Romans 14 is meat. It's actually a big, thick, juicy steak. And some people may have great difficulty accepting the truth of Romans 14. But I encourage you to try really, really, really hard. Try to get your mind around this. Because it is a word for all of us. And uh, if you struggle with it, and as we go down through here, and as we look at some of these truths and, and, and think about some of these things, if you're saying to yourself, I'm not going to do that. If you're saying to yourself, that's just not, I just can't do that. I'm not going to submit my, my uh, liberty in Christ to the silly scruples and thoughts of others. Well, you need to think hard about that thought. And maybe you need to pray for some maturity. Because... The Bible does, does here tell us that we are not to do it. Don't do it. Don't do anything, even things that the Scripture may permit that causes another to fall into sin. Now, I've been hesitant to mention any specific list of things that would apply to us today. We keep talking about this eating of meat. 
And of course, we know that really doesn't apply to us today, probably, especially if it was talking about the, the Jewish dietary laws or if it was talking about the meat offered to idols issue. It probably doesn't apply to us, and so it kind of goes over our heads. And I, I've been very hesitant to mention uh, any of the issues that might be on our minds, preferring rather to let you come up with your own list, because I'm sure that every one of us has a list. Every one of us has things that you can think of that good Christians ought to do and rotten Christians don't do. You probably all have those lists. Carl, you have a list, don't you? Yeah, see? We all have those lists. So I've been hesitant. But I'm going to mention one, and I'm only going to mention it because Paul mentions it here. It's in verse number uh, 21. He said, It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Look at that little phrase, nor drink wine. Isn't it interesting that that is in there? And the question is often raised. I have the question asked of me all the time. Are Christians, is it acceptable for Christians to drink alcohol? Should Christians drink? comes up all the time. That is one that does apply to us, whether or not the eating of meat does. Some would say that we have liberty and point to the fact the Bible nowhere specifically condemns it. And they would be correct. Some would say that Jesus even seemed to bless it with his first miracle and that Paul prescribed it to Timothy for medicinal purposes. And, of course, they would be correct. All those things are true. Some would take the opposite view. They would go to Proverbs chapter 23 and say, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? And then, and, and they would say, the Bible clearly says you ought not to ever drink. So which is right? Which is right? I want you to notice that Paul equates that very issue with the issue of meat that he's been using in his argument and the same larger truth he's applying there. Notice what he says. He says, it is good not to do it. You see that there? It is good not to to do it. That's what he plainly says. Why? Because there's something intrinsically wrong with the drinking of the wine? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying if it causes another believer to stumble, then we should not do it. If it causes somebody else to stumble, if somebody else in your circle of influence believes it to be wrong, then you ought not to do it. It's a hard word, but it's the truth. And it's why I, for the most part, abstain. It's not that the Bible specifically prohibits it, although it clearly surrounds it with warnings, but because if it could cause somebody else to be bothered by it, I don't want to do it, and neither should you. So even where we have liberty, we are to subjugate our liberty to the well-being of others. Paul takes the same issue up in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 9, he says, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Both, both places talking about the same thing. So if we take, take both of those, we take what he's saying here in Romans and we take what he's saying in Corinthians alongside each other, we have this, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Beware is the word he used in Corinthians. Beware. And I can think of no other way to interpret that than as a warning. He's warning us. Warning 
the Corinthians in that case, of a potential danger, a potential error, a potential misstep in their walk with God. And that error was putting their personal liberty above the spiritual well-being of brothers and sisters in Christ. In Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, a soothsayer named or warned Caesar, warned Caesar, and he said this, he said, Beware the Ides of March. Caesar ignored that. And, of course, you know what happened? Got himself stabbed to death. He should have listened when that word beware was used. And so Paul says here, beware that your exercise of your rights, that your liberty in Christ doesn't cause a weaker Christian to stumble or to trip or to fall. Beware that somebody doesn't see you doing something they think is sin, and therefore to them it is sin, and then sin by doing that thing which they think is sin. This is difficult stuff. That's what Paul's teaching. And Paul's warning to the Corinthians went even further. He said to beware that in so sinning against a weaker brother, you don't actually sin against Christ. Because that's what you would actually be doing. 1 Corinthians 8, 12. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So in other words, when we insist on our liberty, when we insist on living a certain way, even though we know that it might offend somebody else, when we overlook the scruples of our weaker brothers and sisters, we sin against Christ. It's hard stuff. It's not just about you and me. It's not just about the weaker brethren. It's about our relationship with Christ, our fellowship with Christ, which is broken. And it is a reminder, isn't it, that what we do to others, we do to Jesus. Paul had a personal testimony about this. You remember when Paul was saved? Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. So right along, he was going to go and torture and uh, imprison and perhaps murder, I don't know, some Christians in Damascus. He had letters uh, of, to, to uh, authorize him to do that. And he's riding along, and all of a sudden, Jesus met him in a way, knocked him to the ground. And uh, he said something to Paul, which was interesting. He said, well, his name was Saul at that time. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, Acts chapter 9. Paul had been tearing all over the countryside persecuting Christians, thinking he was persecuting Christians. But Jesus cleared up any misconception he might have had. He says, you're not persecuting Christians. You're persecuting me. And Jesus said something like that. He said in Matthew chapter 25, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And so if we take these things together, if we take Paul's teaching here in Romans and also his teaching in 1 Corinthians, it's simply this, don't do it, Christian. Don't do it. Don't let your liberty about things, even things that might be permitted in Scripture, be a stumbling block or a hindrance to other Christians. Beware. Beware the mistake of putting your personal liberty ahead of their Christian growth. In other words, pay attention to their game. Now, if you're like me, because I'm a very carnal, wicked person, I read that and I try to think of loopholes. I try to think of how to wait a minute. Now, this cannot, this just cannot be totally true. There's got to be some, there's got to be something that mitigates this. Does the principle in this verse mean that we can never practice our Christian liberty? What then is the purpose of the Christian liberty? If I could never do that without causing someone else to sin. Does it mean that we must always subjugate ourselves to the lowest common denominator among us? I mean, after all, there's always going to be somebody in our midst who's weaker in the faith than we are. There's always going to be someone who's younger, someone who's just saved, someone who has a misconception about certain things. 
And, of course, there's also always those who are the professional weaker brothers and sisters who believe it their part in life to constantly be holding us to a standard uh, that they think uh, we ought to. Is that, is that what this means? We're always to be beholden to that? In our day, there's this mad rush to make sure that we never hurt anybody's feelings. That even the vilest and most wicked and unbiblical of lifestyles be accepted. That's, uh, that's what we're expected to do. That's what our culture demands of us. We live in a day when tolerance of anything somebody else wants to believe or practice is considered to be uh, the, the main virtue, to tolerate that. Is that what Paul's required of us? Must we always cater to any other scruple that somebody might have? Well, I think, obviously, when, when we're talking about people who champion actions and attitudes and, and lifestyles and behaviors that are clearly defined by God as sinful, then the answer is plenty no. That's not what Paul's talking about here at all. He's not talking about blatant sin. He's not talking about things that are clearly called out in Scripture. He's talking about, and we mentioned this last week, he's talking about Christians who love the Lord, who are trying to serve Him, even though they may have a mistaken view of what is right and what is wrong for believers. And maybe it's maybe mistaken is too strong of a word. Maybe it's just an immature view. They just don't know what the Bible really says. And the question is, must we always cater to such? And I think the answer, according to Paul, is perhaps, probably. We are certainly not to hurt them. That is clear. We are certainly never to hinder them. We're never to do anything that would cause them to stumble. He gives us a little help in verse number 14, I think. If you look at verse number 14, uh, he says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. He, he makes it very, very plain right there. He says, you know what, I, I will subjugate myself to this. If meat causes my brother to offend, I will eat no meat. He says that. I think that's over in First Corinthians maybe. But, uh, you know, he, he says that. But he also uses this as a teachable moment. He says, there's nothing wrong with this. And so, clearly, I think what he's telling us there is, yes, we need to subjugate ourselves to those kinds of things, but at the same time, use those as opportunities. Younger Christian, someone who doesn't understand, teach him the truth. Don't just cater to their false understanding of it. There are many examples of that in Scripture. So don't do it. That's the first point. Let's notice just a couple of other things. And these are much shorter points. Look at verse number 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. I just want to make a couple comments about this section because I think here he's given us some understanding of why we need to take great care to avoid hindering others. First, consider that phrase in verse 14. To him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That's interesting, don't you think? Paul's saying that even something Scripture says is perfectly acceptable for a Christian. If somebody believes it's unclean, somebody believes it's sinful to do it, even though the Bible says it's perfectly okay, if they do it, it's sin. That's pretty amazing. Think about that. But that's what he says. The same thought is restated in verse number 23, where he says that whatever is not from faith is sin. That little word from is the Greek word ek, which means out of. So anything that does not spring from, anything that does not have his basis, its reason to be, its, its, uh, its root, in our faith in Christ, anything that comes from any other source is sin, he says there. It's not an easy 
truth to swallow. As I mentioned, this is not milk. This is, this is hard stuff. And we ought to meditate on it a while. If I am uncertain whether a thing is honoring to God, I shouldn't do it. For to do such would be sin, according to Romans 14. Something that is perfectly acceptable to the person who understands it as such is perfectly unacceptable to the one who does not. You understand that? You see, if your conscience tells you something is sinful, well, you should listen to your conscience and not do that thing. Violating your conscience, even in areas that are seemingly insignificant, is exactly how your conscience gets dulled and deadened. And it may lead to greater sin down the road. So if I encourage a young Christian uh, to sin in some area, it might not even be sin, but he thinks it's sin. It's a minor area. I encourage him to do that. Well, I am encouraging him to deaden his conscience. And so later on down the road, he may commit some other sin and his conscience may not be there to help him. One man said, the principle is when in doubt, don't. The strong Christian is wrong if he causes a weak brother to sin by doing something while doubting. And a weak brother who goes against what he doubts or goes against his conscience also sins. Conscience is not always right. Conscience has to be informed by the Scripture. And so, therefore, we have to teach and we have to help. The young Christian, their understanding of Scripture might be immature. But Paul's words here are clear. Listen to your conscience. If you think something is wrong, don't do it. And then he ramps it up even more. Look at verse number 15. Verse number 15, he says, Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy. Destroy? That's a pretty strong word. So if I cause a young believer to violate their conscience, I'm destroying them? That's what Paul says. Now, he can't be talking about their salvation. We know the Bible teaches that you cannot lose your salvation. He can't be talking about that. What is he talking about? I think he's saying that a weak Christian's spiritual walk can be ruined or harmed, perhaps irreparably, if their conscience is ignored. And I think that's what I was hinting at a moment ago. Let's say, for example, that I convince a younger Christian that it's okay to ignore something they think is wrong and do it. Uh, And their conscience is deadened. And then later on, Later on, they find a much more serious issue in their Christian walk. And there's no conscience there. And they fall into sin, which is much more major. It becomes easier to do, easier to fall because of their conscience. One man said, conscience is a fragile thing. If we listen to it, it can help us stay true to the Savior. But each time we ignore our conscience, we deaden it just a bit. And it gets easier to ignore it. And it gets easier to sin. And so it's not hard to see what Paul was driving at here. Starting a young and weak believer down this path is sending them on a path that could lead to problems in their Christian walk further down. Destroy. Two other phrases I'll mention here in this verse, and then we'll we'll be almost done. Look again at verse number 15. Do not destroy with your food. At least one source I studied in in, in preparing for this message uh, said that there is some sarcasm there. That Paul is actually saying, you've you got to be kidding me, with your food. You would put food, you would put something this minor, ahead of the spiritual welfare and the spiritual well-being of a brother and sister in Christ. It's a valid thought. All of these minor things are indeed minor things. And so, don't do that. And notice the also, the, also the phrase, the one for whom Christ died there in verse 15. The one for whom Christ died. And I think we ought to memorize that. 
Apply it to every man or woman or child we encounter, those we agree with and those we do not, those who have a stronger uh, view of Scripture and those who have a weaker view. It doesn't matter. They're all one for whom Christ died. And so how do we justify thinking any less of any of them? Well, one last verse. I'll make mention this will be done. Notice with me verse number 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. The New International Version renders that verse, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So here's the positive side. We've heard the negative side. He says, don't do it, Christian. That's negative. He says, don't turn good into evil. That's what he's talking about in that previous point. And again, that's negative. But now we see the positive. Do, do pursue the things which make for peace and the things whereby one may edify another. Mutual edification. Notice also in verse 17, he says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, we talked last week about the judgment seat of Christ. Well, when, when we get to stand before the Lord, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know what? I don't believe for a moment when we get there, we're going to have to give an account of whether or not we ate meat. I don't think Jesus is going to ask us whether or not we held to any certain scruples of behavior. I don't think he'll ask about meat. I don't think he'll ask about wine or about any of those other things. I don't think he'll ask about how we dressed. I don't think he'll ask about what kind of music we listen to or any of those kind of things. But you know what I do believe he'll ask? I think he'll ask whether or not we cared more about righteousness than sin. I think he'll ask whether or not uh, peace with other believers was a primary driver in our life. I think he'll ask whether ensuring other Christians, especially those who are younger and less mature in the faith than you, experienced and walked in the joy of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what he's saying right there. The kingdom of God's not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So every day, in every way, we're to make every effort to do those things that lead to peace and mutual edification. It's not about selfishness. It's not about me. It's not about stubbornly doing what we want to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about doing whatever it takes to build each other up in Christ. It's about mutual edification, mutual building up one another in Christ. I live to help you. You live to help me. Mutual. All of this is summed up in chapter 15. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Not about me. It's about others. Always. You know, there is no part of the Christian walk where that is not true. It's not about me. It's always about others. And if we were to go on down in chapter 15, which we won't, but we could look at verses 6 and 7 and see the result when that is true in our lives. When we live for others rather than ourselves, God receives the glory. Our Savior receives the glory. And so I would ask you this morning, where are you in respect to these things? You can turn your gaze inward. And when you do that, do you have to admit you have not paid particular attention to their game? Oh, you're pretty good at looking at your own life, but others, others, maybe you think that you have to admit that quite frankly, you don't really care about whether or not your actions or behaviors or scruples hurt somebody else.
Maybe you say to yourself, listen, I have liberty. I'm going to live however I stinking well want within the confines of Scripture because I have liberty. Maybe that's where your heart is. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, I have to admit that that's a mindset that is very common. And certainly true of me as well. We all have to fight against it. And so I would encourage you this morning, let's ask God to help us with that. Let's ask God to help us. Help us care more about the needs of our weaker brothers and sisters than about our own personal rights, our own personal liberties. Help us, God, to put others first always. Because you know what? Let me tell you something that maybe will encourage you a little bit about this. There is no sacrifice that you can make here that is not going to be rewarded there. There's nothing you're going to give up here that's not going to be rewarded there. I don't think we could improve on martyred missionary Jim Elliott's words when he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus encourages us about those things. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And so realize this. This, this, is, this is a hard truth. We are to submit our personal liberties uh, to the well-being of others. But that need to submit, that need to submit our liberties to the scruples of others is only for a little while. It's not forever. This is not the time to rest. This is the time to serve. The time to rest is yet future. I love that verse in Hebrews that says, There remaineth therefore rest to the people of God. But it's not today. It's when we get home. Now we are to serve. My son Joshua used to play football for the college, Mount Union College. And, uh, of course, they won a lot of championships. And every once in a while he'd come home from a football game all bloodied and beaten. And he'd say, Dad, we left it all on the field today. And, you know, that's how champions are made. And that's how souls are won to Christ. That's how the Lord builds his church. We need to leave it all on the field today and every day. When we reach heaven, we will never again have to sacrifice a single liberty or a single right for anybody else who might be mistaken in what they believe or in their scruples or their weaker faith. But that's when we reach heaven. Until then, it's not about our rights. It's not about our liberties. It's about loving and serving our brothers and sisters. And all the reward, the magnificent heavenly reward, the well done, thou good and faithful servant reward that awaits those who take up the challenge of living for others. Those who pay attention to their game. Well, let us pray. Father, we're thankful. And Lord, we're also, uh, we're also uh, a little bit concerned. For Lord, we see in this something that's very, very, very difficult for us to get our mind around. And I confess, Lord, I struggle with it. I've studied this. I believe that what I've preached today is your word. And yet, Lord, I confess it's hard to live. And so help us, I pray. May we be grown-up Christians. May we be mature. And where we're not, I pray you'd help us to grow and to uh, stretch and to uh, get our minds around this. Lord, if there's anybody here today for whom this is a particular issue, maybe there's a Christian here today who the Holy Spirit's speaking to you to right now 
uh, about some person that maybe they're not they've not been accepting of or or some area where they've they've they, they've hurt somebody else because they've been unwilling to uh, submit themselves to that uh, Lord if, if there is such a person I pray you'd work in their heart right now may they confess it may they repent of it may they get it right Maybe there are some Christians who are sitting here right now saying, I'm just not going to do that. It's just not me. I'm not going to do it. Then I pray, Father, you'd stretch them and help them. May they right now recognize that they need to submit to Scripture and uh, help them with that. Lord, we haven't talked about, uh, about the unsaved today. This has been a message entirely for the saved. But, Father, there may be some here today who don't know you as Savior. And are wondering about that. And maybe they walk through these doors saying, I hope I hear the gospel today. I hope somebody tells me how I can go to heaven today. And, Father, I pray they know we'd love to do that. I pray they'd step out, come to the front, let one of uh, the, the, the believers here take the Bible and show them that truth, uh, Lord, because they need it. So, Father, whatever the needs might be today, some might just need to come and pray. Some might have loved ones on their hearts or minds that they want to pray for. Other needs that we've not even touched on, but that only you know about. Father, if there are needs, if there are decisions that need to be made, as we wrap up our service, help us make them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.